0: Welcome to episode two of That Was Paul. I'm Bill Garrison, and this is a collection of stories about my cousin, Paul Schillow, a Pittsburgh police officer who was killed in the line of duty in 2009, along with fellow officers Eric Kelly and Stephen Maley. In our first episode, we learned a little bit about Paul's family. My Aunt Susie and Uncle Max talked about how they met and how Paul kept them on their toes.
1: He did everything that you can imagine and um, wanted to try everything. Always was, you know, he would do one thing and then go want to go to the next thing and the, the next thing and the next thing.
2: He was good at everything he did.
0: His sisters, Laura and Julia, described what it was like growing up with Paul and how they loved him being at the center of their lives and sometimes at the center of their dates.
3: When we have look at all the uh, family photos he's always sitting in the middle, and we're squishing on them in between. when Laura would have her dates over, he would be right in the middle of both of them. And <laughs> I so. think my mother sent him in for that
0: Our cousin Stevie, who was like a brother to Paul, never stopped admiring his younger cousin
3: yeah, with everything with golf
2: with i mean anything he was it was just weird his um he was he was good at. Everything, like he really was, cards,
0: anything that he did, it was just, he was good. That was it. We all make big decisions in our lives, but few are as life-altering as the one Paul made to become a Pittsburgh police officer. In this episode, we'll hear what drove Paul to make that decision. I myself was shocked when I heard about Paul joining the police force, and I'll bet most of our family was too. But as I've come to learn, Paul started making this decision a long time ago. After graduating from Duquesne University with a degree in psychology, Paul worked for some pretty big companies. He went from good job to good job until something changed.
1: There was another job he went for. I forget which one it was. But he went and he interviewed. And he had no idea what this job was about. But they said, well, you have no schooling in that. He said, give me one day. And I'll learn it. They hired him, and that was it. He he worked there, he but he kept moving. So then one day he comes home, and he said, "Mom and Dad, I'm going. I want to be a police officer." And we just looked at him, and he said, "I have to make a difference. I can't. I need to make a difference." So um, we said, "Okay." He he applied for the Pittsburgh police and the state police. So he did all the training with the poli- Pittsburgh, you know the. Initial stuff. And then they called him and they said, like, he he was going to start the academy. The next day, the state police called and said that they wanted him to. But he said, I already told the Pittsburgh police I'd be there. So that's how he started
3: on the, the Pittsburgh police. Sure, he could have done anything. He could have made whatever he would. He could have written his own ticket. He could have done anything. But he chose that and I just... I just don't even remember. But I think it's because it's a calling. And, it has to be. It and, has to be. And he, I think he flourished so, much, so well in that position because it was what he was meant to, be, to do. Even though he had the opportunities because of his intellect mm-hmm. and because of everything, his uh, athletic ability, that that's where he found was home for him. That's what, and, that, and he flourished.
0: Paul was in his early 30s. The minimum age to apply to the police academy is 19. Most candidates are in their early 20s. But for Paul, being older gave him a different perspective than most.
1: He just, I guess, kept putting it off until he said, I'm not putting it off anymore. And he, like I said, it made his life so happy. But I think he did that at the perfect time in his life because he knew what was good, like, the value of of friendships and stuff like that. He knew all of that stuff. So at that time, if he would have did it when he was younger, it might not have had the same impact on his life. But he he knew so much more about life. And um, he was a good cop. If I would tell you some stories, like, you'll be amazed. You'll be totally amazed at them.
0: Aunt Susie couldn't help but see how being a police officer changed Paul.
1: Okay, when Paul joined the police, he would, every single day of his life, was the happiest person we had ever seen. Paul was always happy. He never had a problem with anything, any, you know, thing that got him done, but he would actually click his heels to go to work.
3: I just know that it it seemed like it was a perfect fit, so... And he was so happy that when yeah. he got his graduation, on the graduation day, we all went. The kids all went, and we all. Uh... I think that that sometimes saves my parents because, like my mother always says, like he he was clicking his heels when he left their house, mm-hmm. like he was so happy. And I think that saves my mother knowing that he was so happy, and he and he died doing something that made him so so happy and I think that really saves her I really do
0: Paul was at his happiest when he was doing something he loved and when he loved something he got really good at it he knew he'd have to start over learn something entirely new this time more dangerous my aunt Susie knew too
1: but I did tell Paul I said Paul Like you are, have seen nothing but the good things in life. Because even though, like, there was not a lot of money, that isn't what a good life is. Good life is love, good family, good friends, good community. That is a good life. I said, You have seen nothing but good. Now you are going to see nothing like the worst. You've seen. The best of life, now you're going to see the other side, which is the worst of life. And he said, Mom, someone has to do it. And I said, Well, I can't argue with you. Like I was looking for a way to argue with them, to try to tell them, you know, this is dangerous. But I I said, Well, I can't argue with you with that, Paul. Someone does have to do it.
0: When Paul went after something he wanted, he did it right. He put the work into it. And he had good mentors along the way, like Officer Chip Baker.
4: Yes, Uh, my name is Art Baker. Uh, People call me Chip. Uh, I'm a lieutenant with the Pittsburgh Police. Uh, And I was assigned to Zone 5 when Paul graduated the academy and came into field training.
0: I asked Chip what's involved in the training. And when I found out, I was even more impressed that Paul left his desk job.
4: So, what happens is you go through about seven or eight months in the academy. Um, You'll go through training on the law, you go through uh, defensive tactics training, um, tactical training, de-escalation training, things of that sort. Um, And then once you graduate the academy, that gives you, that equips you with the basic tools that you need to go to the street. But you still, basically you go into field training, which is training on the job. So you do three months of field training, you'll be with three different people for one month at a time, and I had the pleasure of training Paul. For one of the months of his three-month field training.
0: Driving around all day together, as police officers do, you get to know a lot about someone.
4: I, I met him, uh, and he told me that he'd had an, another job in computers, a good job, and I kind of admired the, the fact that he gave that up and wanted to come be a Pittsburgh police officer because a lot of times for people to call him, um, and I think that he felt that. He wanted to go in his hometown in Bloomfield and he wanted to police the area, which is, I believe is why he transferred to zone five when he did. He wanted to patrol his own area, the, the neighborhood he grew up in. So I admired that about him. Um, you know, and then we hit the road and we, we had a good time.
0: Chip got to know Bloomfield almost as well as he got to know Paul.
4: You know, I remember that you know, he, he was a solid kid. He, he was organized. He had his, uh, you know, he was eager to learn. He wanted to learn the job. Uh, I, he was good with talking to people. As a matter of fact, uh, I would call him the mayor of Bloomfield because when we went to eat, we would have to stop and talk to at least 15 people on the way there uh, if we were up in Bloomfield. He knew everybody, and I would always laugh and say, oh, the, mayor, the mayor's back in Bloomfield again. <laughs> so I remember that, and we were, we were only together for a month, so he did a really good job in the time frame that we were there. We did a couple of exciting things, you know, got some stolen cars. And, and he, he seemed really excited about it, about learning the job.
0: Stevie remembers talking to Paul while he was in training. I still remember this because he
2: went through the academy. He was going through it and I called him. It was, I, I can't give you the exact time frame, maybe a month later or whatever it was. And I called him and I said, I I had told him, I said, I'll support whatever you're doing. And I called him and I said, hey, Paul, um, just want to know, you know, I know you're in the academy, you're almost done. Um, What are your thoughts? Are you still feeling, um, you know, that this is what you want to do? And he said to me, Steve, he goes, this is the
0: best decision I ever made. Laura knew that Paul didn't always do what everyone expected. But he always lived up to his own expectations.
3: He wasn't going to do what everybody else told him to do, and, and or not told him to do, expected him to do. Like nobody expects you to quit a job that you're making that much money to go to be a police officer when you're at a certain. But he didn't care. He didn't do what people expected him to do. He did, but everybody, you know, his expectations of himself were very high, and he always he just went up, you know, right to that. So that's it.
0: Paul made a lot of friends at the police academy. And in Bloomfield, you bring your friends home for dinner.
1: The last day, the day, the last day of the academy, he said, Mom, can you make a lot of food? I said, yes, Paul, I can make a lot of food. He said, I have like eight guys who have been in apartments through this whole academy because you had to live in, you know, the city. He said, and this is the last day, and I want to treat them. So I said, Okay, I said, but we're going to have a problem, Paul, because no one sits down at our dinner table unless they wash their hands and they say grace. He said, well, they'll do it. So I'm taking, I made stuffed shells. I made all this food, stuffed shells, lasagna, spaghetti. So I'm bending over, taking the stuff out of the oven. And I look up and it looked like kindergarten cop. He had a whole line of cops in their uniforms standing to wait to go to wash their hands. It was so funny. I said, oh, my God, I wish I would have a picture of this. Then they all sat down, and he said, okay, everybody say grace, and they all said their grace. And they all ate like you have never seen anybody eat before. And they were taking packages home because they were saying, oh, my God, I guess, you know, they hadn't eaten homemade food for a while. But it was so cute.
0: What happened a few weeks later wasn't so cute, but it was all Paul.
1: So in front of our house is a fire lane, and it's like a $95 ticket if you park there. So about two weeks after this dinner, like they started on patrol, about two weeks after, I come down. Max had been out playing cards, so he came and he parked in front of the house. So I look on his car early in the morning, and there's a ticket. And I go, oh, my goodness, his kid's a cop, and he got a ticket. So then Paul comes in, and he comes in the kitchen, and he had that smirk on his face. I said, Paul, your dad got a ticket. I can't believe that they, you know, that Jonathan would give him a ticket. He goes, Ma. I said, I'm going to, he said, don't pay it. I said, I'm going to pay it because I don't want him getting in trouble. So then he looks at me. He said, Mom, John, I was over the north side because that's where he started. He said, Jonathan called me and said, Paul, your dad's car's in front of the house. What should I do? And he was laughing. And he said, I said, ticket him. So he ticketed him. He said, Mom, I could have told him to tow him. I said, oh, my goodness. <laughs> so we had this ticket, Billy, and it was all a joke, but Jonathan wrote it out perfect. So um we still have this ticket. We put it in a frame because when Paul was killed, we went up his house, and he still had it on his dining room table because they got such a kick out of that. And I said, so we framed it. We have it upstairs. I said, because he was a jokester.
0: Paul didn't change who he was when he became a police officer. He just found a whole new audience to play practical jokes on.
1: When he was at the academy, he drove them all crazy because, like, he would tell them things even that were so crazy. I would give him 10 slices of bread so he wouldn't have to, he could make s- sandwiches for five days so that he wouldn't have to buy bread and have it go to waste. And he would tell them that, and they would go crazy. Tell him about
2: the banana bread. Then
1: I would make him banana bread because he loved banana bread, and I would make him banana bread constantly. He would take like two or three slices in, and he'd give them each a little square, just for them to taste it. Yeah. And I would say, Paul, I will bake them bread, you know, for them to have. He goes, Mom, you should see them all coming over to get each one gets their little square of banana bread. I said, that's terrible. But he got such a kick out of that. He, so he would, they. they got a kick out of it too because they talked about that. That's one of the things they talked about. They'd say, "We can't believe you give him 10 slices of bread. We can't believe that he gives us these little squares of banana bread just so we can taste them, and then he sits there and eats his two pieces." I mean, he he was he was just a, a funny person. But they, they were never mad at him about it. They loved it. They thought it was hysterical because mm-hmm. they were all in their 20s and he's in his 30s. They would call him Pops. The one guy that was at Lot 17 one time, he said he'd come in and they all there was like five of them following him, the younger guys, just like he was the leader, and they were going out, you know, following what he was doing. He was funny.
0: My Uncle Max tells a story that shows when it came to pit cells. Paul would even take his cousins to the cleaners.
2: Uh, our our nephew Jeffrey, he used to he used to uh, wash his clothes up at Paul's house and dry his clothes up at Paul's house. So they come they'd come down here while it was, uh, you know, while the clothes were in the washer and dryer. So when uh, so when they'd leave, the one, the one time when they would leave, I I gave uh, Jeffrey two two dozen of Pitts house, and I gave Paul a dozen of pitch owls that me and Susie make. So now, unbeknownst to us, Bill, I would say about, what, a year or two years later? A year or two years later, Jeffrey came to visit us, and we're sitting here talking. He said, you know, I, I have to tell you this story. He said, I never told you this story before, but I have to tell you this story. He said, do you remember you gave me two dozen of pitch owls, and you only gave Paul a dozen? We said, yeah, yeah, Jeff, we remember that. He said, well, when we were driving up to Paul's house, Paul said, they gave you two dozen and me only one dozen. He said, well, I'm going to charge you six pit cells for doing the, for, for washing and drying your clothes. He said, what? He said, are you washing and drying your clothes? It costs you six pit cells. So Jeffrey said, I had to give him six pit cells. And we laugh. We're still laughing about that.
0: Even after Paul bought his own house a few blocks away from his parents in Bloomfield, he always found his way back around dinner time.
1: He bought his house. Okay, here's when he Max told you about him bringing the girls home from like mm-hmm. Michigan. Okay, so I right. said one's in one room, one's in the other. Well, after that, then he bought his house. I can't remember what year, uh-huh. but um, I guess he figured this is crazy. So he went and bought his own house, and then I didn't care what he did. But,
0: but he I would always remember. come over for dinner, right? Every
1: oh. day, Billy. Every day. Okay, the one when he went on three to 11, the one time I started making him dinner at one. And Max goes, I don't want to eat dinner at one. I go, Oh, well, then you're going to have to heat yours up whenever you want, Max, because listen, the, this kid is in my blood. I said, I signed a paper, I married you. I'll sign a paper, I'll divorce you. But there is nothing ever going to come between me and this kid. So I would make him dinner at one. And every single day he came to dinner. Because I would say, why should he sit up there and I'm making dinner here for us too? Right?
0: Where does one find peace in a tragedy? Where does a mother and father find hope when they lose a son? My Aunt Susie and Uncle Max relive that morning of April 4th in their minds when Paul walked into that house answering a domestic call. His last act as a Pittsburgh police officer. And what they play back over and over again is that smile.
1: I said when he walked through that door that morning, there is, was not a happier person on this earth. And that's the only thing that we think about. The const- That's the only consolation that we have was that he was happier than people that lived to be a 100 years old and that's the only thing that we think about because he had found in his life something to do that was not no big pay nothing like that but it was something to do that made him feel like he was making a difference
2: and I always say Bill every human being there's a little thing inside us to tell us, like people have a, people get a job, but they're they're not happy in their job. But there's something inside them telling them where to go. And like I said, uh, Paul followed that little voice inside of him, and I think that's what made when he that's what directed him to become a police officer. He found that true calling that's inside each one of us and a lot of us hear it but we're so contented with being where we're at and we just don't follow that inner sign but we're I believe Paul followed it and that's why he was the happiest always Paul was happy always always happy but I never seen him quite like it when he became a police officer
1: He was here the night before he was killed, and I'll never forget his smile when he was walking out. Like he was walking out, and we always said, We love you, Paul. Yep. And he always said, We'd walk him to the door. And he'd give us, you know, give me a kiss and thought. And that smile when he was getting in the car, I said, Oh my goodness. You know, I'll never forget that smile on his face because he was truly, he found his calling. Yep.
2: He found his calling.
1: He touched so many people's lives, even in the police department. I mean, you know, the the men and women he was in the academy with, they just loved him. It was It was amazing. To, they still come here to visit us. After 11 years, they still come and visit us because he had such an impact on them.
0: Paul's impact was felt by many. After he was killed our family experienced the most amazing outpouring of love and support from friends, neighbors, the Pittsburgh Bureau of Police, the city of Pittsburgh, and tens of thousands of people who mourned the loss of these three men who sacrificed their lives to protect ours. I witnessed a lot of it firsthand and was humbled by the sheer magnitude of affection shown to our family. But what stood out the most in the months and years that followed my cousin's death were the small things, the stories that poured forth from people whose lives were touched by Paul, the things that made him a good cop, and the advice given to him early on by his dad that guided his every action.
2: I always told Paul when he became a police officer, I said, Paul, what you do, son, I said, you put your mother's face on a woman and put my face on a man You treat them with the respect you treat us, and you'll never have a problem while you're serving the
0: citizens of Pittsburgh. And that's what he did. And that's what our next episode of That Was Paul is all about. Please subscribe to the podcast so you'll hear about future episodes. And thanks for listening. There are so many people to thank for making this podcast a possibility. My Aunt Susie and Uncle Max, for hooking up the microphone to their computer all by themselves and doing these interviews remotely during a pandemic. Michael Sork, for his expertise in recording the interviews germ-free. Paul's lovely and beautiful sisters, Laura and Julia. Stevie Shillo, also lovely and beautiful. Lieutenant Chip Baker of the Pittsburgh Bureau of Police, who is now part of the family, whether he likes it or not. Amy Garrison for jumping back into her broadcast producer days to keep everything on track. Dave Hughes for his sage advice and design. Vince Ribletto and Ben Pritchard of Garrison Hughes Advertising for the transcriptions and web development. And to Jay Green and Big Science Music, not just for editing, mixing, and producing this for Big Science Pods, but for believing in it and putting their hearts into it. Finally, thank you, Paul, for making a difference in our lives.